Section 9 of Optics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Optics by Isaac Newton. Book 1, Part 1, Propositions 5 and 6. Proposition 5. Theorem 4. Homogeneal light is refracted regularly without any dilatation splitting or shattering of the rays, and the confused vision of objects seen through refracting bodies by heterogeneal light arises from the different refrangibility of several sorts of rays. The first part of this proposition has been already sufficiently proved in the fifth experiment, and will farther appear by the experiments which follow. Experiment 12. In the middle of a black paper I made a round hole about a fifth or sixth part of an inch in diameter. Upon this paper I caused the spectrum of homogeneal light described in the former proposition, so to fall, that some part of the light might pass through the whole of the paper. This transmitted part of the light I refracted with the prism placed behind the paper and letting this refracted light fall perpendicularly upon a white paper two or three feet distant from the prism, I found that the spectrum formed on the paper by this light was not oblong, as when tis made, in the third experiment, by refracting the sun's compound light, but was, so far as I could judge by my eye, perfectly circular, the length being no greater than the breadth, which shows, that this light is refracted regularly without any dilatation of the rays. Experiment 13. In the homogeneal light I placed a paper circle of a quarter of an inch in diameter, and in the sun's unrefracted heterogeneal white light I placed another paper circle of the same bigness. And going from the papers to the distance of some feet, I viewed both circles through a prism. The circle illuminated by the sun's heterogeneal light appeared very oblong, as in the fourth experiment, the length being many times greater than the breadth. But the other circle, illuminated with homogeneal light, appeared circular and distinctly defined, as when tis viewed with the naked eye, which proves the whole proposition. Experiment 14. In the homogeneal light I placed flies, and such like minute objects, and viewing them through a prism, I saw their parts as distinctly defined, as if I had viewed them with the naked eye. The same objects placed in the sun's unrefracted heterogeneal light, which was white, I viewed also through a prism, and saw them most confusedly defined, so that I could not distinguish their smaller parts from one another. I placed also the letters of a small print, one while in the homogeneal light, and then in the heterogeneal, and viewing them through a prism, they appeared in the latter case so confused and indistinct, that I could not read them, but in the former they appeared so distinct, that I could read readily, and thought I saw them as distinct, as when I viewed them with my naked eye. In both cases I viewed the same objects, through the same prism at the same distance from me and in the same situation. There was no difference, but in the light by which the objects were illuminated, 
and which in one case was simple, and in the other compound. And therefore, the distinct vision in the former case, and confused in the latter, could arise from nothing else than from that difference of the lights. Which proves the whole proposition. And in these three experiments it is farther very remarkable, that the color of the homogeneal light was never changed by the refraction. Proposition 6. Theorem 5. The sign of incidence of every ray considered apart, is to its sign of refraction in a given ratio. That every ray considered apart, is constant to itself in some degree of refrangibility, is sufficiently manifest out of what has been said. Those rays, which in the first refraction, are at equal incidences most refracted, are also in the following refractions at equal incidences most refracted, and so of the least refrangible, and the rest which have any mean degree of refrangibility, as is manifest by the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth experiments, and those which the first time at like incidences are equally refracted, are again at like incidences equally and uniformly refracted and that whether they be refracted before they be separated from one another, as in the fifth experiment, or whether they be refracted apart, as in the twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth experiments. The refraction therefore of every ray apart is regular, and what rule that refraction observes we are now to show. The late writers in optics teach, that the signs of incidence are in a given proportion to the signs of refraction as was explained in the fifth axiom, and some by instruments fitted for measuring of refractions, or otherwise experimentally examining this proportion, do acquaint us that they have found it accurate. But whilst they, not understanding the different refrangibility of several rays, conceive them all to be refracted according to one and the same proportion, tis to be presumed that they adapted their measures only to the middle of the refracted light, so that from their measures we may conclude only that the rays which have a mean degree of refrangibility, that is, those which when separated from the rest appear green, are refracted according to a given proportion of their signs. And therefore we are now to show, that the like given proportions obtained in all the rest that it should be so is very reasonable, nature being ever conformable to herself. But an experimental proof is desired. And such a proof will be had, if we can show that the signs of refraction of rays differently refrangible are one to another in a given proportion when their signs of incidence are equal. For, if the signs of refraction of all the rays are in given proportions to the sign of refractions of a ray which has a mean degree of refrangibility, and this sign is in a given proportion to the equal signs of incidence, those other signs of refraction will also be in given proportions to the equal signs of incidence. Now, when the signs of incidence are equal, it will appear by the following experiment, that the signs of refraction are in a given proportion to one another. Experiment 15. The sun shining into a dark chamber through a little round hole in the window shut, let capital S, in figure 26, represent his round white image painted on the opposite wall by his direct light, 
capital pt his oblong colored image made by refracting that light with the prism placed at the window and pt or 2p2t 3p3t his oblong colored image made by refracting again the same light sideways with a second prism placed immediately after the first in a cross position to it as was explained in the fifth experiment that is to say pt when the refraction of the second prism is small 2p2t when its refraction is greater and 3p3t when it is greatest for such will be the diversity of the refractions if the refracting angle of the second prism be of various magnitudes suppose of fifteen or twenty degrees to make the image pt of thirty or forty to make the image two p two t and of sixty to make the image three p three t but for want of solid glass prisms with angles of convenient bignesses there may be vessels made of polished plates of glass cemented together in the form of prisms and filled with water these things being thus ordered i observed that all the solar images or colored spectrums capital pt pt 2p 2t 3p 3t did very nearly converge to the place capital s on which the direct light of the sun fell and painted his white round image when the prisms were taken away the axis of the spectrum capital pt that is the line drawn through the middle of it parallel to its rectilinear sides did when produced pass exactly through the middle of that white round image capital s and when the refraction of the second prism was equal to the refraction of the first the refracting angles of them both being about sixty degrees the axis of the spectrum three p three t made by that refraction did when produced pass also through the middle of the same white round image capital s but when the refraction of the second prism was less than that of the first the produced axes of the spectrums tp or 2t2p made by that refraction did cut the produced axis of the spectrum capital tp in the points m and n a little beyond the center of that white round image capital s whence the proportion of the line 3t capital t to the line 3p capital p was a little greater than the proportion of 2t capital t or 2p capital p and this proportion a little greater than that of t capital t to p capital p now when the light of the spectrum capital pt falls perpendicularly upon the wall those lines 3t capital t 3p capital p and 2t capital t 2p capital p and t capital t p capital p are the tangents of the refractions and therefore by this experiment the proportions of the tangents of the refractions are obtained from whence the proportions of the sines being derived they come out equal so far as by viewing the spectrums and using some mathematical reasoning i could estimate for i did not make an accurate computation so then the proposition holds true in every ray apart so far as appears by experiment and that it is accurately true may be demonstrated upon this supposition that bodies refract light by acting upon its rays in lines perpendicular to their surfaces but in order to this demonstration 
I must distinguish the motion of every ray into two motions, the one perpendicular to the refracting surface, the other parallel to it, and concerning the perpendicular motion lay down the following proposition. If any motion or moving thing whatsoever be incident with any velocity on any broad and thin space terminated on both sides by two parallel planes, and in its passage through that space be urged perpendicularly towards the farther plane by any force which at given distances from the plane is of given quantities the perpendicular velocity of that motion or thing at its emerging out of that space shall be always equal to the square root of the sum of the square of the perpendicular velocity of that motion or thing at its incidence on that space and of the square of the perpendicular velocity which that motion or thing would have at its emergence if at its incidence its perpendicular velocity was infinitely little and the same proposition holds true of any motion or thing perpendicularly retarded in its passage through that space if instead of the sum of the two squares you take their difference the demonstration mathematicians will easily find out and therefore I shall not trouble the reader with it. Suppose now that a ray coming most obliquely in the line capital MC, in figure 1, be refracted at capital C by the plane capital RS into the line capital CN. And if it be required to find the line capital CE, into which any other ray capital AC shall be refracted, let capital MC capital a d be the signs of incidence of the two rays and capital n g capital e f their signs of refraction and let the equal motions of the incident rays be represented by the equal lines capital m c and capital a c and the motion capital m c being considered as parallel to the refracting plane let the other motion capital a c be distinguished into two motions capital a d and capital d c one of which capital a d is parallel and the other capital d c perpendicular to the refracting surface in like manner let the motions of the emerging rays be distinguished into two whereof the perpendicular ones are capital m c divided by capital n g multiplied by capital c g and capital AD divided by capital EF multiplied by capital CF. And if the force of the refracting plane begins to act upon the rays either in that plane or at a certain distance from it on the one side, and ends at a certain distance from it on the other side, and in all places between those two limits acts upon the rays in lines perpendicular to that refracting plane, and the actions upon the rays at equal distances from the refracting plane be equal, and at unequal ones either equal or unequal according to any rate whatever, that motion of the ray which is parallel to the refracting plane will suffer no alteration by that force, and that motion which is perpendicular to it will be altered according to the rule of the foregoing proposition if therefore for the perpendicular velocity of the emerging ray capital c n you write capital m c divided by capital n g multiplied by capital c g as above then the perpendicular velocity of any other emerging ray capital c e which was capital a d divided by capital e f multiplied by capital c f 
will be equal to the square root of capital c d squared plus left parenthesis capital m c squared divided by capital n g squared multiplied by capital c g squared right parenthesis and by squaring these equals and adding to them the equals capital a d squared and capital m c squared minus capital c d squared and dividing the sums by the equals capital c f squared plus capital e f squared and capital c g squared plus capital n g squared you will have capital m c squared divided by capital n g squared equal to capital a d squared divided by capital e f squared whence capital a d the sign of incidence is to capital e f the sign of refraction as capital m c to capital n g that is in a given ratio and this demonstration being general without determining what light is or by what kind of force it is refracted or assuming anything farther than that the refracting body acts upon the rays in lines perpendicular to its surface i take it to be a very convincing argument of the full truth of this proposition so then if the ratio of the signs of incidence and refraction of any sort of rays be found in any one case tis given in all cases and this may be readily found by the method in the following proposition end of section nine